Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 110 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Hey, Justin, how's it going? It's going great, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so Dirty Honey is back. New album, new tour. It sounds super exciting. How are you guys feeling? It seemed like you wanted to do this earlier, but we had this global pandemic thing that slowed it down, or what was going on? Yeah, I mean, we're super excited about this record. I think it's the best record we've made so far. We ended up going back to Australia to make this record, which is where we made the original EP. And we were going to make the last record there, and then the pandemic shut everything down, and we had to do it remotely, actually. Our producer was still in Australia, and we recorded at Henson studios in hollywood with him like kind of over like zoom it's called audio movies for like, pro tools so he can control the board and everything which was really cool that the te- that technology can do that but we obviously liked it a lot better having him in the room with us so it's just a different experience so getting to go back to australia this time was it was a really good experience and we were we actually got to spend a whole month over there we're usually pretty rushed right, making our records so it was really really good to have the time to just be a little bit more creative, not be rushed. Feel like a studio musician just got to get in there and get everything done and like play, listen to it back, come back a couple of days later and be like, I want to tweak that. It was a really magical experience actually this time for us. So we're really excited for everybody to hear it. We'll come back and talk about Nick Dia and recording in Australia because I'm curious about a whole bunch of things related to that. But it's a bass podcast and we should talk about the bass. You're what I call one of the wolves in sheep's clothing when it comes to the bass often, which is the person who started in guitar and has been great at guitar, but then switched over to bass to like initially start there. So from what I can tell, I'd love the stories. You actually started playing guitar fairly early, but only switched to bass 17, 18. Is that right? No, not at all. Okay. Uh, actually, I mean, I got a guitar when I was 10. And my dad had a really good friend. He played in this band called Shanana. They were the band in Greece. Totally. <laughs> um, and he gave me kind of my first guitar lesson, but he was not a good guitar teacher. He was like trying to get me to do bar chords where I couldn't even like, push my fingers down. Got a little frustrated, didn't really play it. And my friend came over and like left it outside. It got rained on, guitar got destroyed. It was acoustic. And then come around, I'm 12. All my friends are like in a Nirvana and like we want to start a punk rock band need a bass player so i was like dad i want to play bass or maybe it was guitar i don't remember i remember him specifically when i went to the store or talking about it he's like you should play bass because you'll always have a gig if you play bass and actually the first guitar i think he got me was right-handed i'm left-handed so when we got the bass he made a big point about me getting a left-handed one because that's paul mccartney played left-handed and hendrix did he's she was actual to you so yeah i played bass starting at 12 and i think i got i started guitar up again at like 13 it wasn't much longer and I was okay. taking lessons for both through college. I played bass in my high school jazz band. And I was actually, I wanted to do bass in college, but you had to play upright bass at the jazz school that I went to. And I really didn't want to do that. And I actually, I couldn't find a left-handed one. And it was like, when I went in, they, they were like, yeah, you get a right-handed one and it'll just cost you like another thousand dollars to flip it left-handed. And I was like, I'm out. <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, I happened to like also be taking a classical guitar class at the time. And the head of that department, asked me to join the classical guitar department. That's what I ended up doing in college. Amazing. It's just, so sure. was your dad a musician? What was his? 
he wasn't a musician. I mean, I think he played a little drums in high school, but my dad actually, he owned a, a recording studio, but they did like sound effects and fully in ADR, like voiceovers for movies. So I, I did grow up kind of around the entertainment industry, but he, he wasn't like giving me lessons or anything. And he wasn't, there was no playing music around the house until me and my brother started playing. So there's like a two-phase thing happening here. One is you get either introduced to it or someone says you should play bass because the analogy I give living up here in Canada is if you want to play hockey, be a goalie. They always need a goalie type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but the other part is you have to like it. You have to dig into it. You have to want to do it. Yeah. When did you start really feeling that? Pretty early on, honestly, because I think part of it is because I started getting, I was in like, you know, all the bands in my high school. Because everybody needed a bass player. <laughs> and I got into the jazz band and all that. I kind of loved it right away. Like, you know, when I first started, I was really into like Nirvana and the whole grunge scene. So I learned all these Chris Novoselic lines and a, a bunch of the DeLeo lines because I loved STP. And then I got really into the Chili Peppers. Probably learned half the Californication album and most of Blood Sugar set Magic. Mostly the finger style stuff, though. I wasn't, I was never, I'm pretty good at slap now, but I was not good in high school at that. <laughs> I, I, for some reason I wasn't drawn to the words to slap then but you're also taking this track of classical guitar was that just a means to an end for you or is it something you still were thinking about in terms of music and a career and what you're trying to do no it's just kind of like okay this is weird. Um, so my mom passed away when I was 13 and she left me a little bit of money to go to college I didn't really want to go to college so, but I, I wanted she wanted me to go, go to college so I was like, I'll do music. So she wanted me to go to college. So I went to Cal State Northridge, which was pretty close to me where I grew up and actually had like one of the best music departments in the country. And I just kind of fell into classical guitar. I'd never played it before I got to college. But like I said, I took this, this guitar class and I ended up, I could read really well when I was 18. So I was doing better in that class than most of the people that were actually majoring in classical guitar. So the professor's like, hey, you should do this. I was like, why not? I'll give it a try. And it just kind of stuck. I kind of honestly didn't think I was going to finish when I started because I was already, this This is another story, I got kind of lucky. Like My senior in high school, I was also playing bass for our choir, and they did a recording, and the choir master took the recording to a local studio, and the guy's like, oh, who's playing bass on this? And he's like, oh, my student, he gave him my number. And the guy calls me that summer and starts giving me gigs playing just for like local like little pop artists or you know, whoever is recording at a studio that's young that needs a band, he would call me up and be like, hey, you want to play bass for this person? So I was already kind of like in the L.A. sideman scene when I was like 18 or 19, and I didn't actually think I was going to finish college. So I was like, I'll do classical for a couple of years because I want to get better at playing my fingers. I'm already good at that from bass anyways. <laughs> that's, sorry, those two kind of crossed. But yeah, no, I, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and then I did the pop thing for a couple of years, and I actually really didn't end up liking playing the pop gigs as much as I thought I would. I mean, I like the money and not having to work a restaurant like a lot of my friends did. But yeah, there were some things that happened to me where I was like, I don't know if I want to be like a sideman pop artist. So I ended up finishing my degree, which helped me actually a lot. I, I'm actually surprised. I didn't think it would, but like, especially in between the years of finishing college and Dirty Honey, like got me a lot of teaching gigs and just got me a lot of actually classical gigs that I didn't think I would end up doing that helped pay the bills. Yeah. I'm curious, what were some of the things that you didn't like? Was it just the fact that it's a bit of a disposable career? You're kind of interchangeable? What was yeah, it? Yeah, that was pretty much exactly what it was. Like, 
Yeah, just like a wild, wild shot the dark justice. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was definitely the disposable thing. And I remember I'd done this one gig and I did the gig. And like right after we wrap up the gig, I'm like just ran, I'm talking to the musicians, like, oh, how much do you guys get paid? And they were all getting paid more than me. And so I brought it up to the artist or the artist's mom because this was a young girl. And she did pay me what everybody else was. So she brought me into the studio with the guy who was actually getting me a lot of the gigs and the guy screamed at me for like going around his back and negotiating a different rate and i was like well you negotiated my rate and you got me a lower rate than everybody and i think he was taking a piece of it and just realizing that that was happening and how disposable i was i was like i really i'd always wanted to do my own thing but that really affirmed me that i should be always having my own original project and that's really what i always wanted to do so having dirty honey is really a dream come true yeah, and it's a unique situation because you're not just playing bass and coming up with riffs. You've written and write a lot of the music as well. And again, knowing the band from the EP to now and then getting ready for this conversation, I felt like I was able to piece together the story of you a little bit better in the sense of I'm going to gather that having that experience on classical guitar going through the system the way that you did, it helps with things like arrangements, composition, exposure to other genres of music how phrasing can, I mean, these are things that typically a bass player who is just laying down lines might not get exposed to. Oh, for sure. And like, especially live, because, you know, we do put multiple guitars on some of the songs. I've had to find ways of like hitting an open E string and then playing a melody up high, like getting counterpoint kind of happening, even just on the bass. Hmm. So it has been really useful, like incorporating those kind of styles or ideas of how to play the bass or guitar like into our music. So I do want to talk a little bit about Australia. Your main reason for going there is the producer, right? Nick Didia? Yeah. And again, correct if I'm wrong, is Nick related to your manager? Yeah, the brothers. The brothers? Okay. So this was yeah. kind of how this is coming together. So let's walk through a little bit of this story because it's interesting in that your manager is from Big Label, but that's uh -huh. not where you guys are or what this person's doing anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So our manager, Mark Didia, he's kind of a legend. He worked at Geffen. He was kind of the number two at Geffen. He was the number two at American Records, which was Rick Rubin's label. Worked at Capitol. He worked all over the industry. He helped break Guns N' Roses, helped do Aerosmith's comeback in the 80s. So it's, I, the list could go down. I, I don't want to get too yeah. into that. Um, Great timing. But, yeah. And then obviously, like, label, he stopped working for labels, I think, 10, 15 years ago and got into management because he just, like I said, where the money is now. <laughs> So that's kind of his story, and, and we kind of got hooked up with him because he plays hockey with our singer, randomly, and our singer was actually bugging him for years to manage us, and we ended up making a demo of When I'm Gone, and he heard that, and it was all, kind of all over from there. You know, we'd been struggling just doing local gigs, and as soon as we signed up with, with him, it was like, oh, you're opening up for Slash in a couple of weeks, and you're playing Aftershock, which is the biggest rock festival in California, and it was like, like as soon as we got management, it was like, whole different game and so it was funny so like we're like he gets us these gigs opening up for slash and we're backstage opening up for slash he'd been sending our song around to different producers and he says it to his brother's brother like i can make that fucking record great and he's like how do you guys feel about making it a record in australia we're like yeah i want to go to australia i don't think we'd even thought of it we didn't even know what his brother had done and then he's like oh yeah my brother he's a straight producer you know he did rage against the machine and pearl jam and bruce yeah, just a and couple and of pilots yeah. like and i'm like Wait, like he produced like some of my favorite bass players of all time. Like I'm so in. Yeah, it's really a sheer joy to work with Nick because he's so chill. Also, he's not one of those producers that's like, 
micromanaging everything. He's more like getting the vibe right, getting all the sounds right, and then telling you when something's good and to follow that feeling. I mean, you wouldn't know this about me, but in the late 80s, early 90s, I started off as a music writer. Really? And I had a lot of stuff going on. It was really, really great. And I met Nick because Nick had produced a local artist here, and I was very embedded with the record label, which was Sass Jordan, her album Rats. Uh-huh. And at the time, Nick was emerging for sure. And we had stayed connected. I mean, I haven't seen him at this point. It's probably been decades. Yeah. But when I saw his name attached to, to your band, I thought that's unbelievable because people don't realize his, if you go and look at the albums he's worked on, it's insane. But he's done a lot of work in particular with Canadian artists. Like he's very big in Canada. He's got a name up here. I didn't even know that. I, yeah. you know, we get over to Australia and he's like huge at Australia. He'd like pretty huge power finger, which is the biggest band in Australia, I guess. At least in the nineties it was. <laughs> yeah. And so is it a no brainer to go and spend time in Australia or is it just the family connection that makes it that much tolerable? I don't know if it's a no brainer because it is so far. Yeah. It's expensive too. I mean, <laughs> honestly, it's cheaper than the food here in LA. <laughs> He does kind of like, you know, give us the family deal, I think, a little bit. Um, it's honestly such a beautiful place. Like, he, he lives in Byron Bay, Australia, which is, I don't know, kind of like the Venice Beach of Australia, but before it got too over-commercialized. We rented Airbnb, and we were like two blocks from the beach. We were all like walking down to the beach every morning before going to the studio. And then his studio like overlooks this like wonderful shire, actually. And you could like see kangaroo jumping by and stuff like that. And it's very inspiring. So I know, especially for Mark, who likes to write his lyrics at the last minute, uh, um, it, it was really helpful for him for that kind of inspiration. And I have to admit, like having the four of us go away somewhere and like, be living together and going, like spending every minute together, pretty much. I think it did actually make a difference. I don't want to admit it because I'd rather probably make a record in LA and be able to sleep in my own bed. But uh, we really did get a great product, so I can't complain at all. And all of the guys of the band, it's are all in LA, yeah. Or, or have they dispersed now? Or no, we all live in LA. We're kind of spread out all over, all over LA. I'm up in Thousand Oaks. Mark's in the Marina. Our drummer Jaded's in Burbank, and our guitar player John's in Van Nuys, kind of area. Uh, okay, so but, for anybody who knows LA, what you're basically saying is nobody ever sees each other. Is what that means? <laughs> <laughs> Just at rehearsal, pretty much. I was uh, gonna say, yeah. Uh, but no, actually, John and our drummer, Jaden, we all used to live together at the house John's still at right now. We lived together for like two years. And Jaden was actually kind of the original drummer for us when we were getting started. He just actually got like a big touring gig kind of like right a few months before we actually got with management. So it just didn't end up working out at the time. But then when Corey left, we didn't even have auditions. We just called Jaden. We already know this. You guys are having such an interesting career. Because if I think about the music business when I was originally in it, it was all about securing management, securing that big label, getting on those tours, making it happen. It was really difficult, if not impossible, for an independent artist to happen. Clearly, now we've seen things like streaming services and others that have pushed the ability for a band to do this. But you had a massive breakthrough with the number one Billboard single with When I'm Gone. And you've maintained this independence. It's really unique and interesting yeah i kind of didn't expect it to last this long to be honest but since we've kind of gotten to where we're at and we still have full control it's really hard imagining giving it up at this point 
I know people like to think we really are independent and we've done this all on our own, but I have to give a lot of, a lot of credit to our manager. He really did used to run Labo, so he knew what to do. Like he's, he set up a whole team for us. We do have radio. We don't have it as much now, but when we did the first album, we hired a social media team and they helped actually bring in all the streaming companies too. Yeah, we have a publisher. We have a merch company. We, we have everything but the actual label, I'd say. Help me understand it. Do you need that now? Is there pressure that if you really want to get on the tours, if you really want to do these things, you have to still have a label? Or is that a real hey, ar- archaic idea of the past? I think the idea of that it's an actual label maybe is archaic, but you have to definitely have somebody that's very ingrained in the industry. Having our manager, he's the kind of person that can call up very important people and they pick up his call and they take him seriously. If I call up those people, they're not even going to take my call. They're not going to respond to my emails. So that is important. Like having a radio person that can walk into every radio station in the country that plays rock and they know who he is and they know that he represents other major artists. That's important. And so the idea, like, you don't need to know anybody and all that, that's not true. You definitely need to have connections. And there are there is gatekeeping. We just happen to have a manager who could open up those gates as opposed to a label. And that includes getting on these big tours and being a part of those platforms? Or is that a struggle? Because record labels, I'm assuming, still have power because they can leverage one artist with the next and things like that. Where... 100. Oh, well, he got us one of the biggest agents. Our agent represents Guns N' Roses. So it was kind of the same thing, like on our first couple of tours, I remember talking to like the local booking agents and then be like, oh, kid from English is your agent? Like, no problem. We're putting you on this show. I trust Ken. He's got a history. And yeah, I mean, our first gigs were opened up for Slash and we got that because our manager worked with the same management company as Slash's manager and they, their offices are literally right next to each other. And our manager was just playing when I'm gone all day for like months. And Slash's manager walked by one day and was like, hey, what is that? <laughs> and he sent it to him and then he said to Slash and Slash goes, hey, get him on a couple gigs. And then you have that credit for Slash and you know the ball kind of keeps rolling from there. And have you been hanging out with my buddy Todd Kearns at all or do you? I love Todd. <laughs> Todd's the greatest. Yeah. Todd's Canadian. So cool. Canadian and hockey and, and all that stuff. And Star Wars, big big nerd like Dude, me. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. What do you think okay. about Ahsoka? <laughs> we can go there. I'm happy to discuss it. I'll tell you the challenge I had with it. The challenge I had with it is there was a lot of canon from the cartoons Rebels. and stuff yeah. that I wasn't following. Okay. And so at watching it, I, I was able to make some connections, but I'm a big fan of comic books and I'm all into the idea of multiverses and things like that. When it comes to Star Wars, not that I'm a purist, and I think Todd is much more purist than I am. I really am challenged when they start bringing in the canon from the cartoons because I'm so displaced from it. That's the thing. So when I watched yeah. it, I just felt like, oh, here we go again. The, the, to me, the bigger issue with what I'm seeing with Star Wars and Disney is the idea of this is there. It's missing. Here's the map. Now we go. It's like yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. getting tired of that. It's arc. almost losing the mystery of it. Yeah. And I, I think about the fact that we had such great stuff with Rogue One. We had yeah. such, there were so many moments where you could go, wow, this is a great place to go. And Ahsoka had a little bit of that for sure. And look, ultimately, I'm just such a nerd that I can't even believe they're making movies about people like this. You know, like it's just yeah, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the bigger. <laughs> I know. That's what's keeping my Disney subscription is literally all the Star Wars content. I'm like, yeah. damn it, they've got me. I can't even yeah. cancel. <laughs> 
Yeah, Marvel too. I mean, it, look, yeah, my whole line is if I was, you know, if you go back in time and told 13-year-old Mitch there'd be a live-action X-Men movie or Doctor Strange that would be actual popular and good, yeah. I'd be like, You're, no, like that's not going to happen. I'm getting <laughs> beat up every day in high school because I read this stuff. There's no chance. <laughs> and now it's like literally the biggest thing in the world. Pop culture. Well, pop, look, this ties into why I'm so interested in Dirty Honey and the music that you guys play, because that is what I grew up on. Like my first real interview in the business was Tommy Lee, Motley Crue, right before Dr. Feelgood came out. So I was, yeah, I was there for all of it. I was there for Appetite Destruction when that first live thing came out where they were playing. I think it was the Ritz in New York City. Dude, that's actually, that. there's like a live recording of that. And that's there is. That's what John, the guitar player, and I like bonded over when we first met. We were like sending each other clips of that show. Like that show totally encompasses like what Dirty Huddy's about, where it's like like they're really tight, but they're actually really kind of like loose and rock and roll yeah. at the same time. And like that's something we're trying to capture in every performance, you know, like that excitement, but that looseness at the same time. And it was such a crazy time because that was probably what, 90, 91, maybe? I think it was 91. Yeah, it was probably around then. Well, maybe and- earlier because it was the Ritz. It might have been, it wasn't 89, was it? No. I don't, I don't think I've it, always seen the YouTubes of it. Yeah. So, I mean, like I had that on actual VHS, you know, I recorded when it played live for the first time and it was unique because that was the most, I actually think that Guns N' Roses is really what led to the grunge movement. I know people talk about Nirvana, but I think it was Guns N' Roses because it was really hair metal, Motley Crue, Poison, Warren. And I did love that stuff. There was nothing wrong with it, but they brought back all the things you just described. And I think that opened up a greater door to make the other artists like that much more accessible, for sure. They, to- they, they, they totally were the bridge, I think. Yeah, because yeah, they were the music was gritty. like, yeah, and it was rock, but it was punk. It yeah. had jazz crazy in it. You know, Duff McKagan also just the riffs that he was playing at that time, you were really just mostly being exposed to bass players who were riding the E string. Yeah. And he was doing crazies. It was great. Yeah, and I love his toad too. Yeah. I got to like hang out with his tech and like look at all his pedals. And- so good. So, so good. good. I mean, I, I got so spoiled with that band that I actually had, I struggled with Use Your Illusion Beyond. It was just too orchestrated. And I, I was just so enamored with the rawness of it. Yeah. That when it, it got too production-y, I kind of started falling off a little. That's just yeah. me. I, I hear you on that. I mean, Appetite's still by far my favorite record. And they God. probably could have condensed the two usual illusions album into one yeah. spectacular album that's as good as Appetite. But yeah, it's that rawness that I'm really after that was on the first album. And, you know, like a lot of like the 70s Stone stuff had the same thing and like early Aerosmith. Like, yeah, just that looseness, but it's somehow tight and like it's sexy and it's gritty. And you could hear each other, everybody listening to each other and played off of each other. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the other thing, like click tracks, samplers, being able to play things over, fix them. This was the bands. And yeah. when they went into the studio, whether it was Mike Klink for, for Guns N' Roses or whether it was a Bob Rock, th- it was a different experience. They were capturing an, an energy, but it wasn't like what happens today with the technology. It just wasn't the same vibe. And I can appreciate today, like I'm a big fan of Polyphia and I can appreciate what yeah. they're doing. They're sick. They're so sick. Well, what I love about, like I can rant about all these bands, Justin, we can spend all day here. What I love about Polyphia is if you watch interviews with these guys and 
they're incredible players, there's no doubt. They're trying to replicate electric music with yeah. it's it's such a crazy when you hear them talk about how they think about music, it's so reverse and smart mm-hmm. that again, it's just another type of music that's so much fun to listen to. We were kind of going for that that looseness and rawness on this album also. Like we actually ended up cutting most of the songs without a quick track and quite a few oh, of them cool. were actually like at least the basics were live. Obviously John will go over over Debbie's solos. Mark will do the cut vocals later. But yeah, like at least half the tracks, like the bass and drums are just a take. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe swap it a fill or something, but it's definitely not well, the ones that don't have a clip. And that's where I was going to before, this idea that we are in a time where there are multiple articles and conversations about this idea that rock is dead. We are in a time when you know, I can love Post Malone, but I find it really jarring that he gets up on stage with a microphone and is playing to backing tape, the whole thing. Yeah, We have bands that we know are just layering a whole bunch of stuff, whether it's even going from click, which I get, to having it doubling a lot of yeah. the, the stuff. And yet, I don't think any of that is true because there's bands like yours, there's bands like Rival Sons, and there are others that are doing incredible things in the scene. Mm-hmm. And it does feel to me that every time people think like, oh, this music is dead, there's always a band like Dirty Honey that comes along and shows that, no, there's ways in which you can keep pushing rock forward. Greta Van Fleet would be another great example of that. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. I don't think rock will ever be dead. I, I don't think any music genre is ever going to fully die. It just might not be the most popular music at the time. I, I think rock really was the pop music of the 70s and 80s and 90s. Or, you know, it was at least as big as, you know, Michael. Yeah. Well, nothing's as big as Michael Jackson, but, you know, it was like in the limelight like that. But I don't think jazz is dead either. There's like some great jazz artists out there Crips. that blow my mind and are still pushing the genre for it. And I think that has been something that we've been conscious about on the rock side. Like, we, we definitely don't want to just, I know people like label us as like a throwback band, but we've really been trying to push it forward also and be like, you know, we are influenced by everything that's happened since the 70s. We're not just trying to replicate the 70s. Like, we all love R&B and we like hip hop. It's like, we like grooves. We all listen to Dilla. I play behind the beat on some of the thugs and it's actually a conscious thing. <laughs> but trying to incorporate all those things into, our, into the stuff we grew up on. We all grew up on our parents' record collections and trying to push it forward and not just do the same thing. Because to me, like, rock really, like, took a different path, especially after grunge and it got you know, the whole new metal thing came in and rock really lost the swing. It lost the, we always say rock lost the role. We're a rock and roll band because, you know, like big swing and we like the, even the tempo is to have like a little motion to them. Like we, we like it to feel alive and not overproduced, I guess, even though we do have some production on this record. Yeah, that's uh, great. But yeah, and my, and the, the tones we choose too. like, I, I'm definitely influenced by Royal Blood. Like, a couple of songs such a great like, album yeah they're so they just played here they're amazing they're amazing and like the way he splits his signal and gets all those different tones i would definitely try to do that in a couple of songs and definitely doing that live because like there's so much space to fill like i've got a whole pedal board and i'm trying to make the sound as wide as i can and fill up the space because there's no second guitar player or keyboards but i'm curious because i want to go a bit down this rabbit hole with you because does it matter what you do in a world where if you created the greatest rock and roll album, it could be the thing that reignites the charts, that reignites people to be in it? Or do you just feel that, look, we're at a moment in time where 
it's just not going to be that big in the actual culture zeitgeist of it. Part of the reason I'm asking that question is because I was thinking, well, what is it now? And it feels like country has kind of taken that slot from rock and roll. It kind of has. And you know what? Country is kind of rock and roll now. Like, totally to like is. A lot of the big records, sure. it's all guitar driven. They like yeah, they look like Bon Jovi driven. videos. Yeah, yeah, they just look like Bon Jovi videos from the 80s and 90s for sure. Yeah. Maybe we'll do it. I'm, I don't think it, I, we just all want to be successful, man. And we all want to like be able to like tour and have good careers and support ourselves and play the music we love. That's really I think, the ultimate goal. Yeah, we do want to, yeah, that's, that's a dream to like bring rock and roll back to the forefront of the music industry. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe somebody else will do it, but it'll happen eventually. You know? Well, the story I always tell is if you go back to the early 80s, I don't think anybody, even looking back on history, would realize that it was quite right in mental health. That was the first band that, metal band at least, or hard rock band that hit number one. Yeah. And this is at a time when you're talking about bands being out there like Ozzy and Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. So you could go on and on. Mm -hmm. Van Halen. Yeah. And it's wild that whenever we talk about this, as in it shifted to that, I'm always reminded that it was quite right. Like I, not to dis diminish that, Randy Rhodes is great songs. Yeah, yeah. But it would not have been the chosen thing at the time. And yeah. it just shows you that it could come from anywhere. It could come from anywhere. And, and it really just comes out to the songs. Like if you write a really great song, it, it doesn't matter what genre it is. That's what the realization I think I've been coming to. Yeah. It's like, listen, because you know, I, I like Billie Eilish. I like, I like so much it's stuff so that it, and it really just comes down to like the songwriting. And if you write a song that connects with people, it, people aren't going to be like, oh, that's, they're a rock band. I won't listen to that. Or they're a reggae band. I won't listen to that. Like, if you write something that connects with people, it goes across genres and it connects and people come to your shows. Yeah. And do you think about that in relation to culture as well? Think about the moment in time that we're in where you have multiple wars going on, a lot of people struggling. Typically, that is a good festering ground for great rock and roll or for it to be popular, but it could not be as well. Do you look at it and think, does this album fit in the times? Do you not care about things like that? I, I, I guess with this album, I didn't care as much, but uh, maybe we did. Because like our first single, Won't Take Me Alive, I think the, Mark told me the lyrics were definitely inspired by the war in Ukraine. I think more the last record, I kind of thought that way more because we were coming out of the pandemic. And I was like, we just need to make a fun record because everybody's been stuck in their houses and everybody's miserable. Like We need to make something where it's just fun and people kind of forget about their troubles. This one, I think we're a little deeper, but we also have a lot of that too because people, I think they still feel that way. People are still kind of coming out of their shells, I think. For sure. Yeah, I mean, also, there's just a lot of shows. There's a lot of bands out there. Yeah. So there's a lot of touring. touring hard the past two years because we had to make up for 18 months of not doing it. Yeah, yeah for sure. I'm, we alluded to this earlier, the fact that you do a lot of songwriting and that you play a lot of instruments really, really well. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about songwriting in relation to also writing bass lines? Is it a thing where you're thinking in bass lines? Are you thinking in songs? How do you work? I think more songs and melodies, really. Like I, I think very, I try to think very melodic when it comes to bass lines, especially like picking my spots here in a melody and then hearing a, a gap and be like, oh, there could be a counter melody to that. There's space for that. I'm a huge Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses, Rolling Stones fan. Like a lot of these two guitar bands where the guitars are doing like a weaving thing yeah. and, and talking to each other. So I'm always trying to get that happening between me and John where he plays something and then I respond to him, you know, and then maybe sometimes we'll link up and play the line together. So yeah, I think about it a lot in terms of that. Songwriting's so weird, man. 
it, you can't really control it. There's been times where I've come, this is just my garage, but all my stuff's here. I come out here and I'll just noodle around for hours and come out with nothing. And then like sometimes one of the songs we have on the record is called Coming Home. It's an acoustic song I wrote. Great song. It's actually one of my favorite songs. And then I saw that you wrote it. I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. I, I wrote that on the bus on tour in like 10 minutes. And I was literally just noodling on my guitar and like kind of doing this bluegrassy finger style thing. And it's like, hey, what if I play a melody on top of this normal bluegrass pattern? And it, and it just kind of came out. And you can't control it, man. It's really, it's tough. I'm a writer, so listen. Yeah, I'm a writer. It's the same thing. Where yeah, like people, the, my new saving grace is ChatGPT because at least it, it acts as like I could actually ask it things that might give me something to keep it versus just the blank screen where you're staring at it, wondering yeah. about your survival. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> waiting for the words to appear. Play, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like there was can't find the breaks. I wrote that riff because I had a birthday party last year and i did like a jam there's this place called the kibitz room in la where i've been playing yeah. since i was like in high school and so they let me take over the room for the night but i invited like all my la musicians and like made a whole spreadsheet we played like 25 songs but one of the songs was uh loud love by soundgarden oh yeah and i played that with one of my buddies and mark our singer of dirty honey came to the show he sang like some led zeppelin songs but the next day he texted me he's like oh dude what was that soundgarden song that you guys played last night that was awesome and I was like, oh, it's Loud Love by Soundgarden. But I was out here when he texted me. And I was like, I sat out here and just played that riff for like, you know, an hour. And I ended up coming up with the riff that can't find the breaks after playing that. It's actually a, kind of a similar riff. It's all like this drony E with like a riff on top of it. But, you know, how often am I going to have a birthday party and then have Mark say, I like this song and then try and write. It, it, every song's different. So I, I can't say there's like a definite pattern. You just got to kind of keep banging your head against the wall. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> God damn, I miss Chris Cornell, though. And then I start thinking about, I miss Lane Staley from Allison. Like, I just Dude, go they, down that whole thing, and I just, get, yeah, I miss they, Chester from Lincoln Park. Like, it's just so bad. It's it like, sucks. Like, kind of, other than Eddie Vedder, there's not really anybody left as far as, like, the big bands, their singers, at least, you know? Like, uh, Scott Weiland was, like, an amazing uh, band. So good. And I, I loved all their songs and their voices, and it's, it's really sad, yeah. Chris Cornell was definitely like my favorite singer of that whole genre or that whole time period. In the early 90s, I launched my second music magazine and we did a launch party here in Montreal at what is, I guess, the equivalent to what the Troubadour, the Roxy would be in LA called The Brick. Mm -hmm. and, and the bands that played it were Alice in Chains, Screaming Trees, and Gruntra. <sighs> and it was just crazy. Like Lane was still there. Mike Starr was still in the band at the mm -hmm. time. And just seeing these bands play what is essentially a 1,200, 1,500-person venue. I mean, I, I know people say. love... <laughs> you have no idea what I've seen in my life, Justin. It's, <laughs> but it's one of those things where... It's one of the things I was actually curious about because you then go out... You've gone out on tour with a lot of these bands that are getting older and are okay. either wrapping it up or getting close to wrapping it up. And I go to a lot of these shows and I still love music, but there's something I miss... It's hard to watch, I should say, in a world where I've seen them play at their peak yeah. or as they were coming into their peak. And I was curious what that's like for you because you've gone out with bands that I love, bands like Guns N' Roses, Kiss, uh, bands like The Who. I'd love to talk about that for sure. How do you feel about Like, I vacillate. There's some times where I'm like, I'm just happy they're playing and it's so great. And then there are times where I'm like, I, I just wish it was kind of over and it was a space for other types of bands because 
some of it feels too like it's not what it was. And I don't know what this is anymore. I I 100% agree with that. And I'm not going to name any bands. But yeah, we don't have bands. to. Well, yeah, I have been disappointed in seeing what they're doing now. And it's not like they're doing anything bad, but it's just like, right. I know what they were at their peak. Even like we saw Iron Maiden last summer. We played Download <laughs> Fest. And Maiden's awesome. And I saw them when I was right. 15 in high school and it was crazy like i was on the lawn mm. some guy like took all the beer cups and started a fire set his shirt on fire threw it in the crowd got tackled by security it was crazy and they were so on point and then you know we saw them this summer and they've gotten they're still great but especially like the drummer you can see like he's like, probably like 70 now and those are hard songs to play yeah and they they require a lot of endurance and i was just like ah oh, it's, it's a bummer because i i really love them and they're just kind of weren't up to what I saw them, you know, when I was a kid, but it's, it's still cool opening up for all these bands. Like you were just talking about the who, like oh, that was kind of, God. we, that, that was really early for us that who show that was our, in the middle of our very first real tour, we were opening up for like another band doing kind of smaller shows. And then we got this one show to open up for the who at like an arena. And we're like, Oh my God. Yeah. And I remember I was hanging out backstage kind of early in the day. And I was like on the phone with my girl and Pete Townsend walked backstage. And he starts pointing at me. And I'm like, babe, I got to go. Pete Townsend's pointing at me. And she's like, who's Pete Townsend? Because she doesn't know. Uh, I'm like, shut up. I got to go. <laughs> and I walk over to Pete Townsend. And he's like, oh, you look like a rocker. And I'm like, yeah, I'm opening up for you today. I'm at Dirty Honey. He's like, oh, cool. I look forward to hearing you. Live Nation picked the opener. I, was like, oh. <laughs> I thought you'd heard us. But he was really nice to me. He's actually like, you remind me of a young Robert Plant. And I was like, that's one of the best compliments I've ever gotten just because you're Pete Townsend and I guess I look cool maybe <laughs> well, who was playing bass at the time was it Pino no Palatino? it wasn't Pino it was uh, John John who's also not John Entwistle John Button John Button okay yeah because yeah. I was like wait a second you said John don't say <laughs> yeah. the J word with a who <laughs> so, what are you sorry. doing Boston just I like I'm like I, wait I, 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 thought... I, I had a blank on his last name for a second yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like yeah it was John <laughs> uh, yeah that was really cool I mean Guns N' Roses was like my favorite band opening up. So like even open yeah. up to Slash the first time, I remember like standing side stage with John and again, like I said, we had we connected over Guns N' Roses. So we were like it was like a real emotional moment for us, like standing side stage, about to go on and be like, I can't believe we're opening up for our hero. And then to actually get to do guns really like six months later was just it was crazy. Yeah, the great thing about Slash is that the guys in the band love the music. And yeah. Miles and you know, we talk about Todd and just they love the music. So they're there for it. And yeah, it makes it so much better. Yes. Yeah, so good. Well, dude, I mean, that's a crazy. Uh, Open it for Guns N' Roses. Those guys love play. They play for three hours every night. And like, dude, they sound check for like two hours before. We barely get a sound check because they sound check for so long every night. Yeah. It's because those guys love play. Axel's not even there. It's just the band. They're like, like band jamming for play. two hours. And it's like, that's something that's really stuck with me. And I, I hope. I carry with me for the rest of my life is that joy of playing. Like, I don't want to get into my 60s and just be like, I'm done. I want to still have that same passion for playing music that I have now and that I had when I first picked up the instrument. Because I've definitely had some, especially this goes back to the whole being a sideman thing. I remember I walked in, I think I was like shooting a music video for some artist or something. And the guitar player on the gig, I, I won't say his name, but he's really an amazing guitar player and he plays for like a lot of big worldwide touring artists 
and he showed up and I was like, how you doing? And he's like, you know, just a plumber showing up with his toolkit today. Oh yeah. I hate that. And I hated that. And that, that really like hurt me. I was like, ah, oh, that sucks. I don't. And I kind of felt that way that day, but I never, I maybe didn't admit it to myself, but I was like, oh, this is not the feel. That's not what I got into music, yeah. you know? But the truth about the work is it is fairly isolated. When you're touring, you know, you're with the guys for sure, but you're in your room a lot. You're not all always hanging out all together. We're recording this. You're in your garage, your shed. You've got your gear around you, but it is an isolation. How do you reconcile that with what you just said? How is it every day you come into the garage and you got to play and you got to create? Is it you only do it when there's an album coming up or a tour coming? Like, how do you think creatively? I just like to play, dude. I get out here every as, day, yeah, yeah, as much as I can. Like, go back to Star Wars. I come out here and I put on a Star Wars show and I do my warm ups and I get through that. And then I'll put on a record that I like and start playing along to that. And then if I have time, you know, like I'm also like we'd have rehearsals and obviously there's life stuff that I have to take care of, especially when I'm in town because I'm gone so often, but. I really do just try and get in here and play as much as I can. It's still my so, favorite thing to do. There were so many bass players that came up when I was getting ready for this conversation. Names like Bootsy Collins and James Jamerson and Flea. We talked about John Paul Jones, Paul McCartney, John Entwistle from The Who. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't know where to go with it, but it is still un unique in that it seems like from an early age, Justin, you were feeling that R&B side too. Yeah, You know, mostly when you get into rock, it is very territorial. You can mm -hmm. go down the rabbit hole and stay in that rabbit hole. But just hearing you even talk about Stevie Wonder's left hand was illuminating to me in the sense of it seemed like you had a mature perspective of music and genres in a genre that in and of itself typically stays very much in its lane. Yeah. And I, uh, like, I think Zeppelin's a great example of a band that's mm -hmm. like, they're obviously kind of the quintessential rock band, but they, they loved R&B. You, you read about Bonzo. His favorite drummer was Bernard Purdy. Um, Purdy Shuffle. Purdy Shuffle. And like, I mean, everybody in the 60s, you, the bass players, you're like, they all listened to Jamerson. He was kind of the, the guy. And I, I guess I kind of went down that route. I had a, a bass teacher who was like really cool. And like, he didn't just come in and show me scales. Like he, he'd show up with like music to show me every time. Like he was the first person that introduced me to D'Angelo. You know, which oh, wow. in turn introduced me to Pino. And I guess I got into the whole parliament thing because I liked Flea. And so you start with Flea and then you go down the rabbit hole. Who's Flea's <laughs> favorite bass players? And then you learn about Parliament and James Brown. And then from there, you're like, I love funk. Okay, what else is going on? And it's really cool to live in the age that we are now where you have the internet and you just. I've spent so many nights going down that rabbit hole of just reading Wikipedia pages or watching interviews of my favorite bass players and find out who their favorite artist is. And then researching that person i'm a kind of a nerd like that so i send way no look, really like would i have would i be doing this 10 years every month with different bass players if i wasn't that type of nerd <laughs> the reason why i did this is because when i would research people like you nine out of ten articles were what your amp was or what strings you use or how you, yeah, and I, I was don't like, care about that stuff. <laughs> I don't care either. And I'm like, I want to have conversations. I want to have rock or music conversations yeah. with bass players. That yeah, was just, totally. like, I don't want to hear about the strings. I'm not really interested in what gauge you used. <laughs> and, and what's crazy is the players to me, and this is somebody who's done thousands of interviews with bands for years and years prior to this, 
they are the most diversified musically. It's surprising almost when I have the conversations of from genre to openness to hearing lines from other places to bringing them into this music. I hear it so extensively in the music that you create. And I think it would just be easy for someone to go, yeah, he's, you know, he's, a, bass, he's a rock bass player. Yeah, I mean, and that's fine if that's what, but I, I don't, yeah, I just want people to like our music. Um, <laughs> it's working. It's, it's working. It's, it's, it's been a wild journey, you know, and people don't really know this. Like, like I said, the drummer and the guitar player and I used to live together. We, we made a hip hop record in like our little garage too. Like we, we like so much stuff. Like I, like I said, I studied class, so I, I really love country music too. Like Alison Krauss and Union Station, like yeah. their live album is one of my favorite records. The Dobro player, his name is Jerry Douglas. He's like one of my favorite musicians on the planet. And I've actually spent a lot of time like trying to learn his Dobro lines on bass, which has been a huge fail. But you know, like it's fun. It's fun. And you do get something from maybe I can't play his stuff like him, but I've learned how to be a lot more lyrical on the bass because of learning that stuff. And that's always been something that I've strove for. I, I guess I don't think about music genres as much anymore. I just think about melodies and trying to sound like a singer a lot of the time or just trying to like be so deep in the pocket. You can't like, you know, like, the bass is hit it so tight with the bass drum, like it, you feel it in your body. I think more about those visceral things that I do about music genres, I guess, nowadays. But if I asked you, you're developing your own voice with the bass, and I truly believe that you are. What does that mean for you? Like, does that mean something to you, or is it just in service of the song and you're doing what you do? Or do you see yourself on this discovery, this journey? I definitely feel like I have been on a journey and like trying to find my own voice. I think I, I probably said this in other views. I don't think I'm like the best bass player in the world, like by any means. It's crazy. Mono Neon, Hadrian Farrar, dude, oh, like, okay. there's crazy. like, there's so many like just incredible, incredible music. Like, I don't have perfect pitch. I can't do these like, you know, some of these things, but it's something that I, I think because of that, I realized at a very young age that like I did have my own voice on whatever instrument I was playing, that's what people would come up to me and tell me like, hey, you sound like you. Um, so especially since this band got going, I've really tried to dive more and more into that and be like, okay, you have all these other styles and influences that you've studied over the years. Like, how can you bring this toward the base? So like, I used, I'm probably not going to do it as much on this tour because we actually have enough songs. But like, especially early on, we didn't have a lot of songs. So everybody in the band was doing solos. I, I was um, going to say, I've seen three or four minute bass solos from you, Justin, yeah, on YouTube. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, They're great. Oh, thanks, man. Well, uh, it's a classical. You're doing a lot of the classical fun things on the bass. It's pretty cool. Well, yeah, see. that's what I was going to bring up is like I incorporated like classical tremolo, which is where you use four fingers to do like really fast stuff. I incorporated that technique onto the bass, which I thought I was being original, but then I found videos of like of Hadrian doing it and, um, uh oh my god i can't remember his name abel royal senior does it too he's like flamenco influence but i thought it was beat original but yeah stuff like but i'm still doing it different than they are and i'm coming from a different place and yeah trying to get counterpoint happening because i studied a lot of bach even though it's, it's really hard to do on bass <laughs> but i could get a little bit of it tell me a little bit about the live shows because when you play the music that dirty honey plays I think it's easy to do the song. I think it's easy to get really lost in it. Meaning if the band really wants to let loose, there's a million and three opportunities and windows for you to jump through. 
I'm wondering how you think about it more psychologically or maybe more from a wellness standpoint or mindfulness standpoint. I'm curious about staying present. Like, how are you present in the moment and at the same time able to be very adaptive to what or where it could go? Do you ever think about that? I think about it more when I'm not present. Like, there's been a couple of times where I've got like a phone call right before we go on stage and it's like some heavy life moment or something like that. And then you're like taken out of it. And I'm more aware of when I'm not fully in it. Because when I'm in it, like an hour and a half goes by like that. Especially like when the band's on and we're all like listening to each other. If the sound's really good and I could really hear John's guitar and like I could feed off of that, I could really feel the kick drum and hear like the feel of his hi hat. Like that keeps me present. That keeps me locked in. And I'm like, I really love performing. So being there and like seeing fans, like that just amps me up. That keeps me so in the moment and makes me play better because I don't want to suck in front of people. That doesn't happen. And if you don't believe me, you can check out the new album. It's called Can't Find the Breaks. Justin, I really appreciate you hanging out with me for a bit and talking bass. And if anyone's interested, let them know where they can find out more about you and what you're sharing on social media or the band. And off we go on to tours. So I'm sure there's going to be a year plus ahead where people can catch the band live too. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Ved. Yeah. You can just follow me on Instagram. I'm Jay Smolian. But yeah, check out the band Dirty Honey. Can't Find the Breaks is out November 3rd. Really proud of the bass playing on it. It's like some of the best I've done. Yeah, come to the show, man. Like everybody's, as much as I love our records, everybody says we're better live. So if you really <laughs> want to check out what Dirty Head is, come to a live show. That's great, Justin. It's real rock and roll. <laughs> Thanks. It's amazing, Justin. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Uh-huh.